Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week, we have a couple of new panelists, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce them, and then I'll introduce our guest, and we'll start talking about our topic for the week. Our first new panelist is Francois Bertrand. Uh, Francois, do you want to introduce yourself again? Let people remember who you are, what you're famous for, all that good stuff. For sure. Yeah, my uh, my main claim to fame is the uh, creating the SweetViz EDA data you know, exploratory data analysis library as open source. I'm a big fan of data visualization in all its forms. I did a virtual reality data visualization system, all that good stuff. So that's that's where I'm I'm approaching this from. Good deal. We also have Ben Wilson. Ben, do you want to just remind people who you are? Sure. Yeah, hi, I'm Ben, author of Machine Learning in Action, uh, a Manning book, and also the creator of the Databricks AutoML Toolkit. Awesome. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week that is Serhi Maximenko. I hope I got close. It was pretty close, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we're going to talk about serial video processing with AI. And it looks like from the article, you did a lot of this in the cloud. If I read the article correctly, some of this, I'll admit, was a little bit over my head. So I'll probably just ask all the stupid questions and then Ben and Francois can uh, sound smart (laughs) by comparison. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Do you want to kind of give us the 10,000 foot view as far as like what problem you were trying to solve and then we can kind of break things down from there? Yeah, of course. So... I will try to briefly describe how I see the problem of video processing nowadays. So on one hand, video data is definitely a massive and essential part of the global data, and it is commonly used in many aspects of business and personal life. And on the other hand, machine learning and deep learning solutions show good results with visual data which is proven in many tasks, uh, such as image classification, face detection, recognition, object detection, and so on. And many deep learning models are applied for for a video stream as well. And additionally, at the same time, we have different devices which allow parallel processing in a certain form, which are also rapidly developing at the moment, starting from uh, CPU with multiple cores, GPU, the latest versions from NVIDIA, and uh, ending with specialized uh, neural inference boards for neural inference on the edge. So, for example, Intel Myriad, Google TPU, Jetson Nano, and etc. And all this uh, together creates an interest in making some, let's call it, fancy stuff with a video stream whether to introduce new features and get advantage of the market 
or optimize an existing business workflow or maybe improve security, etc. However, it is not a trivial task because uh, this fancy stuff usually consists of time-consuming operations and video throughput won't meet the expectations unless additional effort is done for optimization of this algorithm. And, well, stuff is not fancy when it is slow. Uh, so, <laughs> therefore, the, the, the problem which many engineers are trying to solve and which we will I hope briefly discuss today in particular is how to build fast and accurate enough video processing system which would be able to run cutting-edge AI technologies and use hardware environment in efficient way. That makes sense. I guess we should back up a little bit. I usually let the guests introduce themselves, but I was excited to get into the topic. Um, what's your background and, and how does that play into this? Uh, yeah, so uh, I am a software development engineer for more than 10 years. And uh, I have been working with uh, data science projects for the last four years. And mostly these projects were focused on computer vision solutions. However, I used to be an iOS developer before. So my career started at MobiDev company in uh, 2011 with developing mobile application. And that was fun at that time. Mobile development uh, was cutting-edge technology at the time, and uh, a bit later, it became quite easy to integrate computer vision uh, models into mobile applications. So that's why I got interested in the machine learning field. And uh, after I developed an image processing application with the help of Delip and OpenCV libraries, I decided to switch to it. And uh, since then, I participated in several deep learning projects, and the last couple of them were related um, to the video processing and to the topic of our current podcast. And I'm excited to be here and uh, talk about it. Nice. I'm curious if either of our other panelists have done much with uh, video processing or things like this. Uh, yeah, my main background is actually from uh, video games. I did a, a fair amount of graphics uh, programming, uh, hence my, my, my VR visualization, other visualizations. And I know how video can be extremely finicky. Uh, I saw in your paper, you talk about FFmpeg and and all these things and there there's these can be pretty pretty painful to work with. There's keyframes you can't just split videos arbitrarily and, and I could see how that could be challenging. So I'm really curious to hear more about how you're you're managing. Yeah, it's a large amount of data. It's it's you can't just cut it any which way. So that 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 should be pretty interesting. Yeah, for me, I've done a handful of projects worked with uh, customers at my current company, DataBricks who are doing more image processing, not so much video. When they're processing videos, they're usually chunking it up and, and looking for you know specific frames that don't have a lot of movement in them, and then just doing image classification on that, everything from object detection to just general classification. I have a lot of questions for you later on with regards to tips and tricks, and just to hear your perspective on things. One thing I wanted to ask really quickly, going back to what you were saying before, you know, you mentioned cloud computing versus edge computing. Is that just like a machine in my hands or on my desk versus a machine in the cloud? Yeah, so basically cloud computing is uh, the architecture where you have a connectivity to the to some resources on the server and uh, the main part of the processing is done there. And edge computing is architecture which is uh, kind of opposite when the main part of processing happens on the edge devices. 
So it, it can be, well, mobile devices uh, uh, is also edge devices, but it can be a special model, something more specialized, for example, special cameras installed uh, in some manufacturing buildings. It can be surveillance, surveillance cameras, maybe okay. uh, some um, processing units which handle data from sensors and so on. Okay. And, uh, well, in my opinion, when we talk about cloud computing versus edge computing, uh, first thing which we need to pay attention to is uh, scalability. So we definitely can create this connectivity with cloud services, build infrastructure of computing instances, allocate GPUs there, uh, somehow share it between several workers and manage everything with Kubernetes or something like that. Video card and video A100 supports virtualization and it, it can be split into multiple GPUs. So, and it it is very... It, like, it, it may help a lot with cloud infrastructure. But how easy will it be to scale it when the number of users rises? How many GPU will we need and how much will it cost at the end of the day? And for, from this perspective, edge computing can be a better option. Well, of course, such decision depends on the goal and available resources. But in my opinion, if we know that we can run some part of the algorithm or entire algorithm on the edge, we very likely need to do it. And with this, so the scalability problem becomes much more easy to solve. I gotcha. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify the terms before Ben asked you his million million questions because I want to hear what he wanted to ask. But uh, I was just, we kind of got going and I was like, okay, first I need to know what your background is. And then I was like, and now I want to know what you mean by edge and cloud. So I think we got that answered. Ben, why don't you go ahead and ask some of your questions? Because I'm, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see, yeah, what, what, what you've run into with some of this. Yeah, I'd start with the elephant in the room. The question that I ask anybody who has specialty in ML, particularly in esoteric ML, which image classification, computer vision is, is a, a subset of machine learning and AI. And it's hard, like really hard. So my, my first question is, if somebody's never done it before, and they're looking to get started. They have a, an approved business use case. They know that they need to do something with images. What do you, what's your like, top three pieces of advice to tell somebody getting into this? Here's what you should think about before you start. Well, the first thing which comes to my mind uh, after a question is a so-called CRISP uh, DM methodology, which uh, splits the data science project's development cycle into stages. So first stage is uh, business understanding, and next stage is data understanding, uh, then modeling, and evaluation. Probably I missed uh, some stages, but uh, that's like in general how it works. Uh, so when you have idea in your mind, you need to think about the value which it can bring. And from that perspective, you will get understanding what kind of data do you need and where to get it. So, and I think that like in all the stages, data understanding is maybe the most important part because like creating a model, trying some hyperparameters, changing the model architecture, it's not so difficult, but much more difficult is to clean the data, find a way where to find it, gather, and ensure that this data will 
match the environment where the, this model, model will be used after it is done. And so at the first stage, I would pay, pay attention to, to the question of data. And so if you, let's say, if you got a data set with images, the next point is selecting a model. And here, again, you need to ask yourself some set of questions. So for example, where this model is supposed to run. So if you are going to, to run it uh, somewhere on edge infrastructure, let's say you bought a Raspberry Pi and you want to do some uh, OpenCV stuff with it, then of course uh, you need to select a lightweight architecture which can meet your expectation in terms of performance. If your goal is to run it somewhere on the cloud, probably it will be it can be some bigger model which can give you better accuracy. Yeah, but anyway, first steps will be done not on the edge, not on the cloud, but on your local machine, let's say in Jupyter Notebook with the, all the data analysis and uh, evaluation metrics. Okay, so punching back to the the modeling. I've had discussions with people before who are are new to this and they read a couple of blog posts. They get really excited. Like, wow, we can, we can feed images and it can detect stop signs and buses and traffic lights. And they're looking at the Uber data sets, of course. And, and they're seeing how these models perform, like looking at mask RCNN and saying, wow, that that's super cool. We can totally apply this to, to our use case in our business. They may or may not have you know, well-labeled data and, and masked data with the coordinates bounding boxes to, to detect stuff. But the question that I get a lot, and sometimes I see people try to implement, is doing a roll-your-own CNN from scratch. So what are your opinions on building something from the ground up? What are the risks with that versus doing something like transfer learning? That's a good question. I recently I was thinking about the same uh, stuff and uh, currently um, I see a tendency that many data scientists or computer vision experts they are start looking for some papers ready made solutions find some models on github uh, and so on and personally I do not like this way of approaching the problem because in my opinion it is it is better to create a model in your head first, understand how it should work, and then probably if some ready-made pre-trained model fits what you what you think about it, then you can take it. But otherwise, you can try building it from, from scratch, and a big chance that it will work in will work in much more efficient way. Because first of all, you can pre-trained available models, they are usually trained on uh, common data sets, which are... Um, generalized. Right? Yeah, they're generalized and uh, they are maybe not so good for your particular task. And by creating your own model and with your own data set, the accuracy will be much better. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, and with respect to, to transfer learning, not, not so much just use the, the fully trained model, but saying, hey, I'm going to lock, lock down the first 50% or 60% of the CNN and say, don't relearn this stuff, but I want to use what you've learned here, like edge boundaries, shapes, general character 
characteristics of the image. And you can freeze that and, and actually materialize what that vector is or what that matrix is at that, that particular point. You can pool it, get an image and say, oh, it's detecting the outline of things. That's cool. It doesn't know anything about what that is because the classifier stages and the fine, the fine resolution is much later on in, in the CNN. But doing that can save you a lot of time, uh, even though you're not using that model, but you're using how that model learned to detect things of importance in images in general. And then those last stages, you can say, all right, you need to retrain on my images and my labels and learn this stuff. But yeah, I really liked your answer and how you approach it with like, hey, think about what this is doing and what your domain space is. I think that makes it much more successful instead of just picking something from the ether and saying, well, it can detect cats and dogs really well. It should work for my use case. It's like, no, it doesn't really work that way. So do you, do you think actually that's a good question as far as particular use case versus generalized data? It, I guess it's it's about balancing maybe getting the benefit from, like you said, the, the, you know, the basic shape recognitions and then figuring out where you plug in your domain specific data. So are you saying you should use, that would probably be a good approach to kind of use generalized data for the, you know, the more common problems and then put in your own model and training data on top of that? Yeah, I mean, it, for applications that I've done and worked on, if people are trying to do something similar to like what Pinterest does, right? Their image recognition of general things that people are taking pictures of in the world. Some of these pre-trained models, they're designed to do that. They were trained on that sort of data. And they're trying to say, is this a picture of a lighthouse or a ship or a banana? You know, it, it kind of does that. You might not use their labels. You have your own labels. So you can lock in the, the first 90% of that and say, retrain the last 10% of it and learn my labels. And here's all of my training data. So just retrain yourself on mine, but don't manipulate all those early for ResNet or uh, VGG. When you're looking at those extremely deep models, don't retrain how it figures out how to do edge detection. You'll be running a training process for weeks, probably. Inception V3, how many months did it take that to train originally on how many billions of images? You're never going to get the performance with the budget that most companies have versus like Google and Yahoo and how they built those things. Yeah, and it, it really, it's exactly what I agree with what uh, Sarah said, which is think about your problem statement and, and what you're trying to solve and adjust it accordingly. Great. Yeah, because when you said starting from scratch is a good angle, I just wanted to clarify that you're not talking about, like you said, like, you know, reinvent the wheel or start from ground zero. It's really kind of putting, you know, where it matters, your, your domain-specific training on top of, of those existing bases. Yeah, one thing that I was wondering was, are there kind of common approaches or common setups, common algorithms, common ways of doing this that you would commonly say, okay, my problem fits well on one of these three, four ways of doing it, or I do have to go reinvent it, right? Because, yeah, it sounded like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, Serhei, you're basically telling us, yeah, think about it and then see if it fits onto something that's well understood. And then if it doesn't, then, yeah, you may have to go and do something a little different. Um, well, let me clarify what I meant. So basically transfer learning and pre-trained models, it is a good thing. And they very often help people, help engineers to build their models. 
but I think that it is a first thing to to consider. So, at the first glance, you need to look at your task, at your data, and try to build a model, assuming that there are no ready solutions. So, how you would do it if there was no pre-trained models? Mm-hmm. And so, if if you have a clear vision of this model and you will be successful in implementing it, it will be much better than some standard uh, solution based on pre-trained ResNet or something like that. Follow-up question okay. to, uh, to some of the, the discussion. We're talking about the data, and I, I'm 100% on board with everything you said about how data is the most important thing, way more than the algorithm, and I agree. When we're talking about curated labeled data for image classification, just how critical is the quality and the accuracy of those labels? And how do you get them in the first place? You mean get data or get quality? The quality labels. If you're doing classification, how would you figure that out? Well, you make your kids do it. Most of them have some of those. (laughs) Amazon Turk. Of course, I do not label data manually. It would take ages for me. Uh, So currently, if you have a question where to get a data and you have unlabeled images, you have such options as going to annotation service and just pay money for annotating them. Or maybe uh, like if, if there are models available which are very similar to this task and trained on related at least data, you could use something like domain, domain adaptation and uh, pseudo-labeling techniques and like label at least part of this data and then build some initial model uh, using this uh, part of data. And after that, you can keep um, updating the rest of the data, data labels by improving this model. So as far as I know, this approach is called active learning, something like that. Mm-hmm. And personally, personally, I haven't faced with uh, such task, but I know that developers are using it and it helps to label label the images. Yeah, like using a Siamese network where you're saying, uh, hey, uh, I have a ground truth, and then I have another model I'm trying to figure out how well can it actually predict what this other one I know is the correct one, and then start adapting that by passing in new new things and saying, almost auto-classifying and auto-labeling. Yeah, those are complex, but they're super cool. And I've only seen them implemented correctly once uh, by visually looking at the code. But yeah, they're, they're really cool. Yeah, I also heard about such an approach when we use activation maps received for from classification models in order to find where the objects are mm-hmm. and get bounded boxes, like rough bounded boxes. But again, it's only like, a theoretical paper, and personally, I haven't faced this applying this approach in practice. But it sounds very interesting to me. Yep. I want to go back to though. You've mentioned that you may want to just start from scratch, right? With no pre pre trained data. What what algorithms do you use there? Like, if you have data, maybe it's labeled. Yeah. What are you building from with that? Right. What What's your approach? It's it's a very general question, but uh, I can just tell about uh, example from my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Story time. I get yeah, so I participated in a project where we uh, were building 
uh, biometric verification system. And one of this uh, system consisted of multiple parts. Uh, one of these parts was anti-spoofing, uh, face anti-spoofing. And so the idea behind my model, which I decided to create, was that we have two images. First images is just regular images with a face. And second images is face after uh, lighting on the screen. So we show a white screen and we have like a reflection on a face. And uh, like having such kind of data, I had idea in mind that the Siamese network can work in this case because we have two inputs. So I decided to build this model from, from scratch and I got pretty good results. So the actual detection of the fraudulent activity was if somebody's holding up a piece of paper, yeah, it'll reflect yeah. and wash itself out more so than a natural fit. That's genius, man. So I read the blog post that you did on that and I was like, man, I really want to see, because you didn't go into the, the details of that. And I was like, I want to know how this is built. Um, but yeah, it's super cool. But I also read another blog post that you did about the driver's license verification, about that small, small image. And it was, I guess it was maybe part of this project where you were trying to see, is this person who they say they are? And it, was that another stage in this validation? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that uh, was uh, uh, part of this project. And well, it's actually what you're talking about is about finding the face on a document and doing a face recognition. And it sounds uh, pretty straightforward to implement. But the problem is the quality of the images, because usually quality of images with driver licenses, uh, licenses they are very bad because driver licenses, uh, they have some spotlights, they are often dirty, they are very old and like- I don't know, mine looks just like me. So you're the one. <laughs> During working on this task, I saw many very bad images with driver licenses and that was, was a problem. But uh, from the technical perspective, it's only a face recognition. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. But from the image pre-processing, when you're taking something of ultra low resolution or there's contrast issues, do you do pre-processing? Projects that I've done in the past where we had issues like this, I'd say 95% of all the work was in image pre-processing where you're, you're fixing you know, image artifact issues or, hey, somebody took this picture with a digital camera that was probably manufactured in 1991 and it's 2014 and you're like, how is this so bad? It, nobody's face is magenta. So it, like just fixing that so the CNN doesn't get confused by some tones or, or some element of that. What sort of processing did you have to do and how did you think through that process? Well, to be honest, we tried to do such reprocessing, many different filters applied to images. Uh, but at the end of the day, we decided to go another way. We added image quality assessment model and, and we just filtered out all bad images. So you took the engineer approach. I, I approve. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> particularly in training data, because you're going to be polluting the model if you're throwing garbage data into it. And at classification time, you just want to make a best guess. I mean, that's all AI is. It's like it, my best guess of what this is. Yeah, cool. Yeah, if I if I may, I'm I'm curious about the the paper you were discussing in the beginning. We're, we're looking at for the video processing. As far as we've been talking about image processing, and I'd be curious how, how does the game change when you you start processing live video or streaming video? Why is it same types of algorithms methods? What, what, how how is that different? Well, just let me uh, describe the um, approaches which are possible to do, and I think that. Uh, when I tell you about it, you will understand uh, what is a game changer. So I see like two possible ways to do uh, the video processing. First way is uh, naive serial processing. When you do the operations sequentially for each frame. And second approach is uh, concurrent pipeline. And Oh, and quickly, when you say operations, you mean you're doing facial recognition or bounding box detection, things like that, or clean, or is that uh, data cleanup, like in real time image cleanup, or or all of the above? I mean all of the above. So after you got a frame from the decoding, you need to do a bunch of operation. It is it may be pre-processing, uh, neural network inference, post-processing, maybe some other stuff, maybe some filtering to improve the quality and so on. So all these operations are done sequentially when we talk about serial processing. And so it, it, it looks like the simplest solution and very often simple solution is the best, but not in this case, because first of all, time for processing an entire video equals the sum of time consumed by each such operation multiplied by the number of frames to process. And it is way too slow. And secondly, with such approach of serial processing, parallelism or of your hardware is not utilized as it could be. So if you have multiple GPU, edge computing boards, such as Intel Myriad, or even just CPU with multiple cores, or some combination of the above mentioned devices, all this becomes useless in case if you do sequential processing. And I will try to uh, like describe why. So uh, imagine that uh, you are doing uh, neural network inference and after it post-processing. Uh, let's say some heavy post-processing which takes some time. And after neural network inference is done on GPU, you start doing post-processing. And this time during post-processing, GPU is waiting. So it is idling because it, it will start working on the on next inter, iteration. And here's the question, what, why not to use uh, GPU immediately? And here where pipeline approach can help. help. And um, so once the inference is, is done, it is immediately starts uh, like take, takes a next frame as input and start inferencing there. And it is possible because these two components of the pipeline work in two different threads. And so in this approach, the total FPS uh, is defined by the bottleneck. And usually bottleneck is a neural network because uh, assuming that we are developing AI-powered solution, probably we will have it there. And for understanding what is the bottleneck, uh, it makes sense to measure the 
time consumed by this operation. But basically, what I mean by saying all this, that's... So, this, so basically, it sounds like the, the big difference is you video has so much data and it's in real time and it becomes a, a matter of managing the computing resources you are at hand and kind of juggling so to make sure everything is busy even though there's maybe three things to do if you do a and then b and then c and then start over it's going to be it's not you're not going to get full efficiency because machine a might be waiting for machine like uh, component c to be done so so to to make sure you use your hardware you're you're needing to jug make sure every every component is computing so you need to manage the frame multiple frames being done at once at different stages so that yeah your hardware all your resources need to be firing at all times yeah yeah you described it correctly and only after introducing pipeline architecture to video processing we can really use all available resources in efficient way so if we needed to handle temporal relationships between video frames we're trying to upscale a video and we need to make sure that we're anisotropic filtering for instance between frames is smoother i know that we see that with some of the the older movies that people are doing oh we're going to do an hd upgrade of this movie and then the fans see it and they're like oh it's too smooth it's it doesn't look like it does on film so when you're handling like the temporal nature frame one to frame two to frame three to frame four and there is a relationship between frame one and two in a temporal sense. If you're going to be doing effectively hyper-threading or thread pool processing, how would you handle that? And what, what sort of interface would you have to a buffer to make sure that you have correct ordering and referencing on priors for the current frame? That's a good question. And actually, in my projects, I did exactly this, what you described. So we had uh, a frame buffer, and we do we uh, do not start processing uh, from the first frame, but we wait for some time, some number of frames, in order to fill our frame buffer, frame, frame buffer, and uh, only after this we start processing because we see the context, we see the frames from the past and from the future and we can build some algorithm which will decide what to do in the middle in the middle frame so and in particular i applied this approach for interpolating the bounding boxes if you uh, decided to skip some frames like let's say in order to improve the performance and make it faster because it is not necessarily to uh, run object detection model on each frame we can right. skip skip some frames and do it uh, each second frame and if you do it you need to interpolate frames in between and this is where this uh, logic with frame buffer really helps so you just do persistence of where the bounding box is on interpolation between the states of the selections that's genius man definitely wanted to get you to that that path because it's kind of what based on some of the, the blogs that I read of yours, I was like, I bet this guy is doing this. I just wanted to make sure it was on the podcast so people heard about it because uh, that is a genius implementation of how to handle this by lowering the pressure on your hardware, but still getting the same accuracy and performance. And that's what that's what we should be doing as applied ML practitioners is think about it as an engineer would. How can I reduce the cost of executing this while still maintaining the accuracy? And what you just explained, hopefully gives everybody an idea into the 
the mindset of a true engineer implementing something for an AI system. So great, great answer. I was really curious about one aspect because in uh, in video games we need to to do this kind of parallel processing to you know pipelinings is is a big deal. And I was curious you mentioned edge and versus cloud computing and some parts can be suitable on on the edge portion and some some back in the cloud. Were you able to to actually mix them up because that sounds like a a really good you know, pipelining challenge to schedule some edge, then to the cloud, then back to the to the device, or is that is that not feasible? I think that mixed approach is possible, and moreover, it is uh, mixed uh, very often. So, assuming that video processing consists of multiple building blocks, which we already mentioned, so it can be uh, decoding, uh, pre-processing, inference, and uh, other stuff. So we have these building blocks and we can run some part of them on the edge and do the rest on the cloud. And this will address maintenance issues at some point. So imagine that you have multiple devices on the edge uh, and uh, you have installed your system on these devices. And while going through development cycles, you need to think about updating all of them because you will probably will improve your system, add new features, uh, change something. And it, it is not very convenient to update all devices all the time. And in the meantime, like an alternative approach is to, to run only some part of your models on the edge. So for example, you can run object detection model there, get raw boxes, send them to the host, and in this case, business logic and post-processing can be modified much more easily because it is done on the cloud side. And just for example, we may have a camera with built-in face detection and recognition system mounted directly to the camera hardware. And while used, it gives only a final result, personal identity. From, like, from the user perspective, it is functional. But uh, from the development, it is not flexible. And another option is, is a camera which uh, runs a detection model, sends results to the host, and then, uh, then we have a business logic or post-processing algorithm which does the rest. And in the first case, uh, this camera device is ready to use a module, fully functional, but it's not flexible. And in the second case, the, our edge device is half-baked uh, module uh, which is basically a source of information. And in my opinion, it is like a bit flexible solution than fully edge computing or fully cloud computing. It is something in between. Great. Yeah, very interesting. Is there anything that, that exists out there, like out-of-the-box solutions to, to what I, I feel is a management like pipeline, like scheduling problem to you know do some edge back to cloud, back to edge, and, and even on the edge device, I assume, manage each step in parallel or not? Oh, well, basically, the answer is yes. Indeed, uh, there are options uh, which provide architecture for, for pipelining. However, usually it is a low-level API which with, with their pros and cons, and sometimes they are maybe too obligating. Uh, so I would like to mention here GStreamer framework. Uh, it is media processing framework, which is successfully apply, applied in many applications. And it is based on uh, 
multi-threaded pipeline, which we mentioned before. And as far as I know, FFPG framework also allows building a custom filter inside the, its pipeline and even with a neural network. Personally, I have never tried it, but I know that it's possible. And the next item here, which I'd like to mention, is a GAPI module in OpenCV framework. So although it is in the early stage, of development, but it looks really interesting because they claim to provide graph-based optimization of the entire algorithm, not only neural network as part of it, but the entire algorithm, including frame decoding, reprocessing, inference, and other stuff. So all operations uh, which you do with the image, they are uh, compiled into a graph, and uh, this graph is optimized depending on the hardware, like different hardware, which this operation use. And for me, it looks uh, pretty much interesting. However, like despite the fact that there are existing out-of-the-box solutions, developing the pipeline on our own without any frameworks is also a good option because in such a way you get absolute control and flexibility. But like disadvantage of this approach is that it may be very difficult or challenging to develop in such a way that it is your pipeline is responsible to changes uh, to changes of uh, configuration. Let's say you may decide to to change the um, backend device on the fly or change the output destination, and it it is tricky to develop such pipeline which can update itself accordingly. But personally, I tend to go for this option because for me, it leaves more space for experimenting and research. Makes sense. Thanks. All right. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything that we miss that's critical to mention before we uh, head into our picks? Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and do some picks. Now, yeah, we have two new panelists. You've both been guests, so you've done picks in the past. But I'm just going to explain it just for everyone's benefit. It's just shout outs about stuff that we're enjoying, stuff that we like. Can be books, can be movies, can be technical, can be non-technical. We can pick movies. Oh yeah, anything you want. <laughs> we try and stay away from the political, just because we're kind of in a yeah a place where people are unhappy with each other over stuff like that. But yeah, just kind of whatever you want. I'm gonna go ahead and throw a few of them out now. One thing that I think I've been picking for the last few weeks, this I'm still on this kick with, is a book called Who Not How. It's kind of changing the way that I'm running the podcast network. I've been trying to pull more people in to take on certain tasks within the podcast network. 
involve more people in some of the things that I have going on, just so that I don't have to be the person that's kind of the point person on everything. And so that I can go and I can serve more people, right? I could do the things that I'm really good at, instead of trying to do all the things, whether I'm good at them or not. And so I've really, really been enjoying that book. And it's just really made me think. Over the last few weeks, another thing that I've picked up is, and I don't know if they do this everywhere, I'm assuming they do, is I joined a master's swim team. And master's is for adults, uh, so it's 18 plus. Now, I swam in high school, but it's been more than 20 years <laughs> since I was swimming on a regular basis in the pool with a coach telling me what I was doing wrong and all that stuff. And it's been kicking my butt. But I have, I have really, really enjoyed uh, being back in the pool. So I'm going to pick that. And speaking of uh, having something that I forgot the term that you all were using. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, but having something that's been trained for one thing and then you uh, use it for another. What, what's the term for that? Transfer. Transfer, Transfer learning. learning. Yeah. So I've been running marathons, right? I was supposed to run a marathon this Saturday and uh, I wound up sick on Friday. And so I, I couldn't run it. I actually contacted the marathon and they deferred my registration till next year. Yeah, transfer learning doesn't work from marathon running to swimming laps. Uh, just just so that you're aware, right? So uh, I was in okay shape for running. I I was in terrible shape for swimming. It just doesn't transfer and learning doesn't work there. My technique was pretty good in the pool, but I, I was I was so sorely out of shape, and so I've been pretty sore this week. But I, I love it. So if you're looking for a good way to just get a full body workout. Go see if your local rec center has a master swim team. Might mean you're getting up at five in the morning, but I think it's worth it. So I've been enjoying that as well. And then I'm going to pick two more books. I have an Audible account and I tend to listen to books. And then if I really enjoy the book, then I'll actually go buy a hardcover like I did with Who Not How. So I'm actually going through it again in hardcover. But these two books are books that were recommended to me by some friends of mine. And it's, it's really kind of making me think about things in a different way as well. And they're kind of related. So for what it's worth, I'm going to pick them. The first one is As a Man Thinketh. I'm trying to remember the author's name, but it is, it's an older book. Like the newer books, they kind of have a different structure to them where they kind of go, hey, here's the principle and here's a story and here's an illustration of where you might use it and blah, 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 right? The older books, like I'm trying to think like Think and Grow Rich or Win Friends and Influence People. They tend to be much more, here's the principle, here's how to use it, here's the next principle, here's how to use it, here's the next principle, here's how to use it. And that's that's kind of how this flows, right? So it's really, really dense information-wise, but it's terrific. So As a Man Thinketh, and then the other book is Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. And it's been rewritten. I got the updated and revised version. And I can't remember, I, I think Dan Kennedy picked up like he bought the rights to revise it and stuff. And it's kind of been rewritten with Maxwell Maltz uh, voice, but it's it's kind of modern age stuff, right? And so anyway, I'm really, really enjoying it. Dr. Maltz died in like 1973 or something, but they kind of revised it so that it talks about having a cell phone and having that affect things. But they're both about visualizing what you want and visualizing who you want to become. And so as a man thinketh, the, the main focus is what you think about is what you become. And then psycho cybernetics is literally visualizing what you want, visualizing the thing that you want to materialize. And, and then focusing on 
what you have to do to get there. And just by visualizing it, you're more likely to have it happen. So I'll pick those. We'll put links in. If you put the links in the chat, they wind up in the show notes. So that's the best way to do that. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. Uh, Francois, why don't you go ahead and go next? Yeah, that, that sounds like that. If you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. That was that mm-hmm. that, that baseball philosopher guy, uh, <laughs> quote unquote philosopher. No, that's that's good. For my part, I'm sticking with uh, kind of my, my latest pick which was more, I'm all about workflow, not reinventing the wheel, making, you know, using computers to serve us. <laughs> We're the masters. So anything that can be automated that should, I mentioned feature tools last time for automated feature engineering. That's that's always great to do, trying to see if there, there's something that can be extracted out of the data. Another thing I run into is I, on my personal workflow, sometimes you know, you're, I'm trying out model after model, changing parameters, changing the way that the data flow is uh, on a given project, and then you know it all makes sense. And then I save things, you know, underscore v1, v2, v3, v4, and I have all these experiments and things. And I go back to the, there, you know, two weeks later, I'm like, what was that crazy thing I tried that was kind of you know that, that was that did this this kind of feature that could have been insightful and I have no idea. And I look at all my files and trying to figure out history. So I've, I've, I've started looking into, or I discovered uh, experiment, automated experiment tracking and that kind of stuff where everything you ever do is automatically logged. So you always know the exact code that was run, the, all of the results, and that's done transparently. So far I've worked with, I'm working with comet.ml and that that's that's one of them there's i know there's multiple out there but just uh just something to be on the lookout for if you're looking to enhance your workflow there's probably there's probably a tool or a library out there to make your life easier and once in a while it's always i think good 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 thing to just maybe spend half an hour to an hour just to say hey like is there anything or even with your own you know creating your own functions is things you keep repeating over and over, you know, you can probably in the long run save a lot of time. Uh, so, so there's, there's automated experiment tracking, feature engineering, and, and yeah, so it's my tidbit for the day. I love that. I have so many thinks about that, but I'm going sh- to, I'm, I'm going to let Ben share his picks instead. Yeah. From uh, like the past couple of weeks, I uh, get more involved with the MLOps community, really great group of people there and very interesting pointed discussions some flame wars but they're professional so if you haven't heard of it check it out it's it's a great slack community several thousand members now uh run by demetrius brinkman uh and it's it's just a great place to go and learn and contribute and help other ml professionals out in pretty much any question that they're having and hopefully you can bring some knowledge to the table Uh, on the book front two things one of my colleagues data rigs lee how uh, wrote another book, and it's pretty great. It's uh, hands-on Scala programming. It's sort of a practical guide to Scala development. Uh, I'm one of those those weirdos in the MO world that uh, that does both Python and Scala in production. But the way that he approaches it isn't just for the Scala language. It also teaches uh, pretty thorough software development practices and how to think through a problem and write the code for it in the most simple maintainable and extendable manner. The guy's a, a legend in the community. He contribu- contributes to the core language of Scala. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're interested in improving your your software development practices, which is, I'd say, very critical uh, in the data science community. And then my other pick is something that makes me giggle. 
which is uh, the latest book by David Thorne. Check it out if you want to laugh. A little bit of dark Australian humor, but uh, super funny. Uh, the guy is ridiculous. Those are my picks. Nice. I think your picks made my nerd cred go cry in the corner. So, <laughs> all right. Sergey, uh, what are your picks? Well, to be honest, I wasn't ready for this question, but uh, I would recommend one book, which is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Probably heard about it. It's like, I really enjoy it while reading it because it is uh, written in really clear manner just you understand everything uh, on, on each page and like it's uh, easy, even easy to read and it helps you to improve your everyday uh, life with uh, making like this in uh, creating uh, good uh, habits and getting rid of some bad habits it may sound odd but uh, it's i really recommend this book awesome and if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you? Oh, you, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn network. So I believe that if you type my name there, it will be easy. But I assume that a link will be also provided somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can get a link in for LinkedIn. Yeah, and if you search your name, actually, you dominate the top uh, 50 Google results. So yeah, you're easy <laughs> to find, man. <laughs> All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. This was an awesome conversation. And uh, thank you for inviting me. I hope that it was helpful. And uh, I was excited to share the highlights from my experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, till next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.